it's pastorally unkind to be in a province where the official line is that you can ignore God's warnings of the wrath to come. And when he says, if you live this way, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we say, but that's not quite true. You'll be all right. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. And today, we are excited to welcome Dr. Lee Gatiss to Stand Firm. Dr. Gatiss is director of the Church Society and is on the editorial board of the Global Anglican, a trustee of the annual St. Antholin Lecture, and a member of the Latimer Trust Theological Work Group. He is on the Church of England Evangelical Council and the Council of Affinity. He serves as a member of the Editorial Board of Studies in Puritanism and Piety, and is also a lecturer in church history at Union School of Theology. Dr. Gate is so glad to have you on Stand Firm. It's, it's great to be here, Nick, and great to see that you've done your research on who I am for <laughs> having me here. Thank you for all that. Well, why don't you tell our listener a little bit first about the Church Society, what it is and its mission, before we get into the current state of affairs of the Church of England, which is what we want to talk to you about today. Oh, great. Yeah, Church Society is a very old Anglican evangelical organization working within the Church of England. Uh, our job is to equip God's people to live God's word. That's our strapline. Uh, but we're really, we are a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. And we do that um, in various ways. And because we're good Anglicans, all the ways begin with the same letter P. Um, <laughs> so we do we do publishing, politics, patronage, prayer and partnership. Uh, we, we publish a magazine, The Crossway, a journal, international journal called The Global Anglican, which you've already given a shout out to, The Global Anglican, um, and books of various kinds. Um, we are involved in the politics of the Church of England, in all the committees and uh, synods and things like that, and interacting with those. We're involved in patronage, the other P, which is this funny system in the Church of England where every parish has a patron so that when the vicar dies and goes to glory or just below that, if he uh, is promoted to the pension of bishops uh, or if the, the minister just moves on somewhere else, it is the patron's job. Um, ever since the Middle Ages, since the Anglo-Saxons, to the patron's job to to appoint the new minister. We have that role in about 130 parishes up and down the country and uh, in one place in, in Dusseldorf in Germany uh, as well. So publishing politics, patronage, obviously prayer has to suffuse everything that we do. We have a regular prayer meeting and, and prayer tweets that go out every day and lots of people who join us in that way. And partnership, we have churches that partner with us um, and we we gather together in conferences to partner together as well and build each other up in that fellowship. So that's Church Society. That's who we are. And I've been director for just over 10 years now. Can any church apply for patronage with you? Or is that a, is that a list that exists that's closed in some way? As an American, that's an amazing sounding mm. system. Yeah. Well, it's very old and established thing. Um, you used to be able to buy and sell the rights right, to be right. the patron in a church. And in fact, the Puritans tried to buy up patronages um, in order to put good men in 
um, to those those places in the darker corners of the land. Uh, Charles Simeon, another great uh, Cambridge evangelical from the 19th century, also spent all the royalties from some of his books on buying up patronages. Unfortunately, they put a stop to that in 1923 because all those people in Downton Abbey era were selling off their patronages um, to the highest bidder. And it became a bit of a, a commercial game, which was dirtying the hands of the church. So you don't you can't buy and sell that now. You can. Um, one patron can decide voluntarily without any cash changing hands uh, to give up the patronage to somebody else if they want to. Uh, and we've had some people who've transferred their patronage to us, individual patrons, the local landowner, or um, occasionally just some little old lady in the congregation who happens to have inherited this and who doesn't know what to do with it and so gives it to a society which knows um, how the, the game is played, as it were. Yeah. Cool. Sometimes new churches, too, um, are planted. And there's a church in Exeter, for example, in the southwest of England that was planted out of another big church. And they decided to become a, uh, their own parish and therefore they needed to have a patron assigned. And they decided they wanted to be under church society, which is a good thing. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the church in Dusseldorf. Do you have other international churches or is that just the one outside of the UK? Well, you know, when I took over, I looked at all the uh, the list of all the churches thinking I might go around and visit them. And I did go to Dusseldorf because, you know, it's great to have an international uh, jolly, isn't it, out of all these things. Um, but uh, we, we, I looked on the list and there there is one in a place called Montserrat, which I thought might be that lovely, warm, tropical island <laughs> of that name. Um, but unfortunately, it's not. It's just a, a small village outside Bolton in the northwest of England. Um, still, I'm sure it's a great place to go. Uh, but the sun doesn't shine there quite so often. No, we don't have much else um, abroad, as it were. That's just the only thing we have in the Diocese of Europe. Your church is looking for a patron, isn't it, Nick? Yeah. Always. Yeah. Okay. If you'd like Church Society to help you appoint your next minister, I'm sure we'd be very happy to do that. We could advertise it for you. Well, we talked on this podcast a couple of weeks ago about the then impending response of the House of Bishops in the Church of England following the living love and faith process. Uh, since then, recommended prayers and liturgies have come out. Um, you've been interviewed several times, once at least movingly with Ben Kwashi. Uh, I've listened yeah. to that a couple times since you gave that interview. What is the what is the subsequent week or two unlike for you? Are there updates? Have there been dissenting statements? I know you were looking for and hoping for some of those. Has has anything like that happened? Yeah, that was that was a great interview, wasn't it? On the Pastor's Heart podcast, yeah. which I, I do recommend with Dominic Steele. Um well, so we've had these um sort of liturgies and prayers that have been suggested and the bishops told us that this was not indicative of a departure from Anglican doctrine in any essential matter. Uh, you know, it's like it's like Ben Kenobi saying, these are not the droids you're looking for. <laughs> look, look, here's some liturgy for same-sex yeah. blessings. This is not a change in Anglican doctrine that you're looking for. Um, and very few people have been fooled by that. Um, but we'll see what the Synod says. There was just today a, a statement put out by some of the bishops in the Church of England, a, a generally orthodox evangelical Ang Anglo-Catholic group of bishops who have put out a statement praising marriage and the beauty of marriage, Christian marriage. Um, th there are a few things in it which I would 
um, ball cat, um, they are a little too positive, I think, still about the idea that there are in same-sex relationships some goods, as they mm. tend to call them, um, that can be celebrated and we give thanks for and so on. Augustine talked about this, didn't he? He said, Augustine said, there are, there's honour and friendship and camaraderie amongst thieves, but we don't necessarily bless that. And of course, <laughs> there is there is love within adulterous relationships and incestuous relationships, true, you know, real love and tenderness and care for one another. And um, we can't, don't have to doubt that. That's part of common grace. But the church ought not to be having prayers of blessing for such relationships or celebrating that in some way, because the context corrupts those good things. Um, and they're not in and of themselves, therefore, Good. So there's a little bit of that in the bit, but generally the the statement by some of our bishops on the more orthodox side has been helpful. It doesn't say some of the negative things that I'd have liked it to have said. It says positive things about marriage, but it doesn't then draw the line to say, and that's why this is wrong. And that's why this should lead to a call to repentance. That's what Lambeth 1998 Resolution 110 said, isn't it? That all sex outside of marriage should be met with a call to repentance, which is then followed by Christ's forgiveness, Amen. which is what we're all about. I mean, that's, I thought, basic Christian doctrine. Repent of all the devices and desires of your heart. Okay. I have many. I repent of those every week, um, every day. <laughs> um, and then we that's met by forgiveness and God's God's forgiveness. And then we try to live in newness of life. Right. to the glory of god's name um, when we've talked about that tragedy of this um for well as long as we've been doing this podcast if not before um and that that's precisely what what is most tragic about this is that they're allowing people to persist in their sin their unforgiven sin i mean they're they're we're blessing a state that is um that has been explicitly pronounced as as outside of the will of god and and, and sinful and therefore withholding the very the very means of redemption, which would be repentance and absolution, um, yeah. from the people who are um, who who are under their care, which is why they you know they've abdicated their responsibility as bishops uh, in this case, without question. That, that's kind of what I wanted to ask about, though. Is I, I, from the, before this report came out, if I'm understanding things correctly, you could be a C of E presbyter and be in a committed same-sex relationship that didn't but you but that was but the understanding was it was a celibate way is that correct um yes, that's maybe right. I'm when, it. yeah when when the um the government introduced civil partnerships and then same-sex marriage the church decided that it it would be permissible for clergy to be in civil partnerships provided they made some sort of assurance to their bishop that it was celibate. Which... They were not allowed to be in same-sex marriages, presumably because the assumption there is that they are sexual. And and so is it, are they now saying, is, is part of this report, it, and I, I heard several bishops after this came out say something that would confirm this, but is, is now the understanding that these relationships are going to be sexual and that's fine? Is that has that been said? This is yet to be determined. This okay. is yet to be determined. So the governing document in the Church of England is something called Issues in Human Sexuality. Yes. As if we were all questioning, I don't know, <laughs> cattle sexuality or something. We have to <laughs> add the word human in there. 
um, as if the church is going to pronounce on, you know, bovine sexuality. You know, it's about issues <laughs> in human sexuality. And that 1991, very old document, did set down that the clergy should be um, in celibate relationships um, if they're not um, married to someone of the opposite sex. And that is the current standard by which, you know, we all have to sign up to that. There is going to be, we're told, some new pastoral guidance in scare quotes um and what that will be has yet to be determined well it's yet to be published i'm sure there's a document already written somewhere in church house in westminster that they've got ready to go but of course the worry is that it will uh loosen that standard that we've previously worked to the statement that this was put out to me was I, it was so confusing it, it was yeah it seemed incoherent and one of the incoherent things was the it, it's not just blessing civil partnerships but actually blessing civil marriages that have reached some landmark point in them right would you just be celebrating uh, yeah. any aspect of it yeah and and clearly i mean a, a marriage even a civil marriage is intended for the coming together of people in a sexual way mm-hmm. so I just don't see how I don't see how the I don't see how the fiction of celibate partnerships or celibate marriages could be could be kept up. I think it sounded yeah. to me like even if they didn't say so in in so many words, it was uh, yes, we understand these people are going to, be, going to be having sex and we're going to bless their relationships anyway. Yes, uh, the way you get you have to get round this somehow with the language. So the way they get round it is by saying, "Well, we're not blessing the relationship; we're blessing the people." And, um, of course, we bless people all the time who are not perfect. Every week in church, we bless the people and they're not all perfect. So and we will be blessing the people because Lambeth 110 1998 bans us from blessing same sex unions. So we say we can bless the people and some of the people will be in sexual relationships, (laughs) same sex, sexual relationships. But the wording of the prayer isn't blessing the people, it's blessing the Yes. The love it's, shared it's, between them. Yeah. Well, no, but you're not why. you're not getting it. See, if you heard the bishop say it <laughs> oh. in an English accent, <laughs> that's true. A nice posh English accent, and they wave their hand like Ben Kenobi, then you would know this is not a change in Anglican doctrine that you're thinking is there. Um, this is really just all perfectly in accordance with it. Still, um, yeah, it's yeah. a fiction. And and, the word that you used is exactly right. That's right. And I never fully understood, I mean, when that argument was teased out the way that you just said, so that they got so specific, um, then the question is begged, well, what are we doing that's unique and distinct about this at all? You know, this was always the question, like if if it's celibate, if it's two friends, if it's all above board and it's just in comportion with or comporting with with classic Christian understanding of friendship and, and camaraderie, well, then what's the big deal? You know, there's there's yeah. there's no need for a special ceremony to to bless your your deep friendship you know i mean unless unless you want one but then again like that's not what we're talking about like that's not what we're uh and everyone well of course they say they say that nothing has changed and so you might get that impression nothing has changed it's all still in accordance with anglican doctrine uh, not indicative of a departure from that in any essential matter and yet at the same time all the press releases are this radical new inclusion this significant step forward this progress (laughs) that's right Um, that's right which one are we to believe? Is it some right. great transformation when we're talking to 
actors and actresses over tea uh, who've been having a go at us on Twitter. Um, we can say it's a great leap forward for um, for this cause, or is it not indicative of a departure from Anglican right. doctrine? I mean, I think maybe they don't know what that is and what it means. Um, <laughs> and all the legal advice and all of the theological work that apparently has been done has been entirely tendentious. It just leads towards and tends towards proving the point that they wanted to prove all along. I've said this from the very beginning. There's nothing in any of this living in love and faith material, any of the listening in love and faith material, which is all the surveys that were done of people up and down the country. Nothing in any of that gave an argument biblically, theologically, practically, pastorally, why we should change the doctrine and practice of the church. No argument was ever made which you know, was convincing in that regard. And so if they are going to change that, it has to be simply a power grab. Right. It has to just be done by force at the end with no argument. And that's what we've seen in the House of Bishops mm. proposals. There's no argument apart from let's slap in big letters 1 John 4.16 into the middle of the press release, God is love. That's right. And those who live in love live in God. And that's it. That's the only theological work done. No persuasion, no no argumentation. And we're just going to do it on our own authority. Synod can have a little discussion about it, but we're going to commend the prayers anyway, which can then be used the day after. So, okay, that was my question. The synod synod doesn't have the authority to stop this. They can only recommend it be stopped or well, the bishops have framed it in such a way that's um they can commend any liturgy they want provided it is reverent seemly and not indicative of a departure from anglican doctrine in any essential matter <laughs> that's what the canon law says and you know what the test is for whether something is in, in departure from anglican doctrine if they it's say what it is the house of bishops yeah. say <laughs> so if they say it is then it is it's like god and his word you know he says something is and fiat lux you know let there be light and there was light so that it's all very tricksy, really. Um, now, what what is the percentage? I mean, do you know? Is there is it are, are these bishops on record, or is all is it all secretive of like what the breakdown between the the sort of progressive and the <laughs> conservative bishops would be? I mean, do we know if it's like fifty fifty? Is it seventy thirty? I mean, is there not an interesting question? An interesting question. Many of them keep their own counsel on these things, of course, and don't uh, don't ever put their heads above the parapet. They say privately. Oh, we're entirely with you. We, I believe what you believe. I don't think they'll, they'll. I don't think there'll ever be a change, which is a way of saying I'm working like Billio behind the scenes to make there a change. But I don't think there'll ever be a change in my lifetime. Is a way of saying I'm working very hard to make sure there is one. <laughs> um, I'll make you think I'm on your side by saying I don't think there ever will be. If we look at the numbers in synod more generally, not just the bishops or the clergy or the laity, but as a whole. I think you would find about 40% would be against gay marriage in church mm. and about 40% would be in favor of gay marriage in church. And then there's a, a soft middle or an undeclared middle that we're not quite sure about. Um, that means that if you just had a full on, should we have gay marriage in church debate, there wouldn't be a sufficient majority to put that through as a change of doctrine because you need a supermajority of 67% to get that change of doctrine through the synod. So they know they haven't got the numbers for that. So that's why they've had to use this slightly tricksy manoeuvre, which is to say, well, we have this mechanism whereby bishops, without going through synod approval, without even getting the liturgical commission 
which is set aside to do this kind of work without even getting them to look at it properly and approve it, we can just commend prayers, for example, for the Queen's Jubilee. Yeah. We, you know, we need to have a mechanism where the bishops can say, oh, we've written a nice collect for the Queen's Jubilee <laughs> or an occasion like that. Um, you know, a prayer to celebrate our fifth prime minister of the year or whatever it might be. The bishops can put that out on their own authority whenever they like. And they are going to use that mechanism Interesting. to apparently cut the Gordian knot of all the debates over the last decades and change the doctrine of the church without actually doing so, apparently. Is there any update about the evangelical response i know that um you had said that the evangelical council was going to be meeting yes. trying to pool brain power about what to do what to say how how to engage this issue is the, 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 the there any update on that yes we met um as the church of england evangelical council ceec um last week for three long days of discussion um, and debate. We talked about other things too. We talked about evangelism. We talked about ministry in um, places where class and poverty uh, and other differences are um, a challenge. We talked about education um, and, and many other issues. But of course, the big issue was uh, this one and the bishop's proposals. There was a wonderful miraculous and joyful unity amongst evangelicals of all kinds. So um, I would be more of a conservative evangelical, complementarian, that sort of evangelical. It also, within this council, we have those who are much more charismatic in their theology and practice are much more open to uh, egalitarianism, to uh, women's ordination. There were some women bishops uh, who are part of things. And Amongst that whole council, there was surprising, uh, not surprising, actually, we've been working at this for a long time together and talking about it, but there was a wonderful unity of mind and purpose that we must not let these things go through. Uh, so that was great to see. Um, as we, we're sort of doing co-belligerence together, yeah. the evangelicals, broadly defined, are very much of a mind on this and that would go for our group on synod as well we have the wonderfully named eggs group evangelical group on general synod eggs uh, which is uh, also i think of one mind uh, that we must somehow resist what the bishops have put forward and there are ways of doing that that's what i was going to ask you what is the recourse here yeah, there are ways of doing it because they haven't allowed that. They haven't opened these proposals to synodical approval. They have allowed a debate where we're allowed to say we welcome these things. <laughs> so you can vote against welcoming and say, I don't welcome it. Um, <laughs> but also the, the legal advice that went with the bishop's proposals is wide open to challenge because it's full of holes, inconsistent, illegal, uh, incoherent. I mean, it's it's nonsense, really. So there are some judicial legal challenges that will be put in over that. There will be a serious complaint put in against what the House of Bishops are doing. It's a betrayal of process, really. It's a misuse of process to decide and do something uh, which, you know, you don't use this commend commendation of prayers process to to suddenly introduce a massive change, even if it was legal. OK, even if they could really declare that it's not illegal to bless these relationships and say these prayers 
over same-sex couples. Well, we still haven't had the debate about whether we should do it. Lots of things are legal, which the church shouldn't necessarily be doing. Right. And we haven't had the debate on whether we should or shouldn't in that sense. So there will be some challenges. There'll be lots of speeches made next week at Synod um, complaining about this um, and in favour of it, I'm sure. Lots of liberal progressive types are not happy about it either because it's not full on gay marriage in church. You know, that's what they want. I'm wondering, you know, in America, I'd say you know, 10 years ago, probably maybe now... 30%, 40% of Americans would have wanted, uh, you know, favored these kinds of things in churches. And now the pendulum swung pretty far. I mean, and most Americans approve of of same-sex marriage and all, all of it. Is And I, I get the sense that England's even further down that road. Is that, was that Would that be a fair understanding is it well, how would you how would you assess the english people when it comes to this particular topic that's tricky um when when gay marriage was introduced 10 years ago by the state um i think it was only about 50-50 really as to whether people wanted that in fact the prime minister who introduced it david cameron split his own party to do it he's the conservative um the Republican, if you like, <laughs> of that sort of side of things. He was a conservative and he split his own party and only got it through by co-opting the votes on the other side. So that was that was a bizarre thing and was really fracturing. And of course, there are still people who would be against it, but they dare not say now because the culture has changed in such a way that we've been bombarded with a deluge of pro-LGBT plus stuff um, all over the media, all over the TV and the radio and everything. So it's now very, very difficult for anybody to say that they're against the, the whole idea. And therefore, to say that they don't think the church should do it is a, another thing. I mean, a lot of people just say, well, let the church get on with being the church. We don't like them anyway. And some would say, well, you know, it's one thing for us to do it in the state, another thing to force the church to do it. But actually, mm. the, the gay activists are trying to force the church to do it in Parliament. Yeah. There were questions last week in Parliament where people saying, well, why is the Church of England not just doing gay marriage? Well, actually, the answer to that is because when the legislation was introduced, we were banned for doing gay marriage. There's a sort of quadruple lock, as they call it, on uh, the church from doing gay marriage unless the church itself and its governing body decides that it wants to. Hmm. So the government itself put that in the legislation and stopped us. Um, I read somewhere. I mean, they were. This was a, a means or an argument for disestablishment. I mean, they were saying, you know, this is a this is yet another reason that the church needs to be defunded and you know shuttered essentially. You know, because it's lovely. So I mean, defunded. That. That's a laugh. I mean, I, I we don't think we get any funding from the government. <laughs> um, it's not like Planned Parenthood or something. You can just press a button <laughs> and you defund it. Um, <laughs> I don't, don't think we get that. I mean, I don't get paid by the government. Clergy don't get paid by the government. We're not a state church in that sense. We're an established church whose job it is to preach the gospel to the nation. Amen. And has a place to do that, a platform within the political establishment. But we're not a state church that's meant to reflect back right. the morality of the state. That, I think, is what Hitler had, isn't it? <laughs> I think our listener would would love a second or two of clarification on that. I imagine that there would be some surprise to hear 
that the clergy and churches are not funded by the state. So would you take a second to explain the difference between a state church and an established church? What I'm most alarmed by is that you use the word listener in the singular. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's our we affectation have you. here. We should have warned you. We had a lot I, more listeners. I'm giving Matt up my listener. evening for a single listener. Oh, never mind. That's fine. Matt started fine. tweeting and people just fled. It was like, as long as he, she, they, or whatever they want to call themselves, whatever pronouns they want to use, enjoy it. I'm sure that's fine. Um, yeah, well, I think there is this funny idea that people think we're a state church and therefore that all the clergy are somehow paid off the government payroll. That's a load of nonsense. I think a that's lot of people think that, at least in America. Yeah, well, that's not how it works at all. Um, no, not even slightly. So um, clergy are paid out of the collection plate, if you like. Some churches will have maybe historic assets that they also have as part of their um, their income. But no, we're generally paid out of the collection plate. There's a funny system that we invented a few decades ago to make this work where, well, you know, it used to be in the Jane Austen times, you'd hear the clergy going on about the best livings, wouldn't you? You know, um, Lady Catherine de Burr was the patron. And she had a great living that she wanted to give to. In a rather large park. <laughs> exactly. And because uh, there was this toadying ambition to try and get the best living because it had the most money associated with it, the tides, the land or whatever. Like Mr. Collins. Yeah, all, and Mr. Collins wanted the best living from That's Lady right. Catherine de Burr. Now, that, all that was equalised out. So basically every clergyman gets paid pretty much the same. There are some slight diocesan differences across the country. You get slightly more in London than elsewhere. That's all sort of evened out. And we, uh, the, the parish, pay the diocese who pay the national church body, the church commissioners, and then the church commissioners pay the salaries, the stipend, of the minister so it does slightly go around the houses the money in order to um allow the diocese and the to, to siphon some off uh, <laughs> in the process That's... to pay for good things like safeguarding procedures and um the whole setup for that and training you know they pay for um uh theological college training and so on but yes there's a bit of a circular system but it doesn't come from the government it comes from the church the church commissioners have a portfolio of assets that they look after and that pays for the bishops and it pays for some national church institutions and so on. But that historic money doesn't pay for the clergy. If your church stops giving, then you stop having a minister. It's <laughs> pretty much as simple as that. <laughs> uh, yeah. You and I have, have talked about this before. And um, if I, I found it fascinating. You mentioned the patronage system before earlier in the, early in the show. And one of the reasons uh, we left the Episcopal church here and a lot of other Episcopalians left for the ACNA is is the question of succession. You know, if if I were to yeah. be run over by a bus, then my old diocese of Central New York bishop, who is very liberal, would have the would have the, all the power in deciding who yeah. comes who comes next. So we really saw yeah. no way to maintain our place in the Episcopal Church after after the decision was made. That's a little bit different. From where you're standing, what can, can you explain how the patronage system works into this? Yeah, so there are various differences between um, tech and the Church of England. Th this is one of them. Another would be that we actually do have the 39 articles, and they do function in some way, even still, as a, a barrier, a doctrinal boundary 
um, for the church. Um, so there have been some legal cases where the, what the 39 Articles say about marriage has been brought in and it's been seen even by secular authorities as defining our doctrine. Oh, wow. um, which you you never had. It's always been in small print at the back of the book yeah. or something, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and there's always been a much bigger, I think, evangelical, conservative evangelical um, cohort within the Church of England than there ever was in America. But this patronage thing is another difference. So it's always been a um, something of a restraint, balance of powers, you might say. Isn't that what you, how you put it? Uh, to balance the power of the bishop, the patron would also be able to stick up for the laity of the church in any appointment. Now it's been even more balanced, you might say, um, if you can balance on three things. A three-legged stool is not very balanced, but um, the, the laity <laughs> also get two people on any appointment board. They appoint their own people from the church, two people, the patron is there, and then the bishop is there. Huh. As well. The bishop only has the power to sort of say, I won't license this person. But to not license someone, there has to be a very good reason, you know, like he's run off with his church secretary or with the church funds or something like that. So there are these checks and balances. That's the American phrase, isn't it? You think you invented that kind of thing, but we were doing it since Anglo-Saxon times. That's right. We inherited that. So you can conceivably stay in the Church of England. I mean, if I mean, I guess it, 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 setting aside the question of, you know, can I stay in good conscience in this organization? But you could conceivably stay in the Church of England and be and be safe from from a kind of hostile takeover of a parish if you belong to a parish with your with your patronage. Yes, it's it's a lot more possible. It's obviously you couldn't hold out forever, probably. Um, and there is that question of whether you want to stay or not. Right. That's another question we'd have to ask. But yes, it would be a little easier because the evangelical patronage bodies. Are, are quite strong um, and are able to put in uh, good people. Yeah. Speaking of staying or leaving, I wanted to ask you a question. I don't actually know how this stands currently. Maybe Matt and JD could chime in, but at least when I came into the ACNA, we are all three clergy in the Anglican church in North America, which is not in full communion with the Church of England and the Archbishop of Canterbury. And when I came in, there was at least some discussion from some quarters about wanting to be in full communion, wanting to replace the Episcopal Church as the sort of affirmed official expression of Anglicanism in America. Um, I think that has probably waned over the years. There's certainly the opposite sentiment, like, why would we want to be in communion with the Archbishop of <laughs> That's That's Matt's view, isn't it? I know Matt's, Matt's heard him express that view on a number of occasions. That's Matt's view. I'm curious what you would say. How How should this recent report from the Church of England affect or impact the ACNA's theoretical desire, if it even exists, to be in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the larger sort of official worldwide Anglican communion. Yeah. Well, the the, the worldwide Anglican communion is, is a funny old beast, isn't it, really? Um, <laughs> the remnant of our great and glorious British Empire um, <laughs> spread across the globe. But it is the, the gospel that's been embodied in lots of different places. Um, and often English missionaries went and started these churches and reached the gospel 
listen to Bishop Kwashi talk about it, right? He is yeah. eternally yeah. thankful for the English yeah. missionaries yeah, who came awesome. to preach the gospel in Nigeria. Yeah, we need him to come back here now and <laughs> right. to us and to our House of Bishops. That's what we need. Well, Cardinal um, Sarah, you know, the Nigerian uh, Roman Catholic that I've been referencing, said as much. He said that the the great Western um, you know, people welcoming these immigrants are failing them miserably by not preaching the, the gospel, the foundation of their greatness to them. I was like, well, you can say that, uh, you know, much more. <laughs> My question is whether that. whether the whether the Anglican communion now wants Justin Welby the Archbishop of Canterbury to be the leader, the primus inter pares, you know, the, yeah. the first among equals. We had this thing recently where we decided we would um, allow the Anglican communion to have more of a say in who is Archbishop of Canterbury. So they got a few more votes on the board that will be put together next time there's a vacancy for that. My question to that is, well, actually, is that what the global communion wants? Is it what we actually need? Would it not be better to have some sort of election or let it go round on a rotating basis? Right. I think of other big bodies like um, uh, the European Union, for example, the European, the United States of Europe. They have a presidency which rotates amongst all the countries. And so the, every country gets six months to be in charge as the presidency of the the um the whole union now not all the power is concentrated there but that's one idea that i think might have some merit for the anglican communion why should it be just one place every time especially since the the bulk of the communion is elsewhere and not here in england you look at the some of the charts you see of the anglican communion and it's uh, you know it's like there's 20 25 million anglicans in nigeria yeah. and there's 2 million here and whatever and then it says england 26 million and i always giggle when i see that because <laughs> i mean we may have 26 million people here who were baptized in the church of england but we have less than a million who go to church in the church, <laughs> of england church yeah, every week and it depends on how you count those numbers really so will they let the Archbishop of Canterbury continue with this place of honour. And I know that many of uh, my friends and other friends in the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans and within GAFCON uh, that, I, that I'm you know part of and proudly looking forward to going to Bali uh, in there. a few weeks' time. Excellent. Yes. Uh, you going, Matt? I was going to, but the, the price is too steep. So if only we had a listener who would would like to underwrite <laughs> Matt and Ann's ticket. So if the was, listener yeah. is out yeah. there and has a checkbook, I would like to send Matt some set money. Set up a GoFundMe. Just write it in the um, send it to my uh, director's discretion. No, don't, don't do that. If you do that, you'll be living your best life now. That's right. That's right. To Austin God, God will send you the increase. No, yeah. it is. Well, send it to my rector. Send it to my discretion fund with this tagline. to africa and we uh, had a great chat on the stairs didn't we last time in um yeah in jerusalem that 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 sounds fascinating i mean i'm that's in part you know i i emailed our bishop at 6 30 in the morning sunday when lambeth was going on because i was watching the live stream before going to church and it was so beautiful and so you know evocative and all of the pomp and circumstance but cold because i said this is this is over. I mean, this is what I, I mean, I emailed him that morning and said, I don't know how the process works, but I, I really want to go to GAFCON because this is going to be monumental, I think, um, in light of what is coming down the the, the pipe. The thing and about so, GAFCON is it represents global right. Anglicanism, which is a bigger thing than the Anglican communion. And I think it's great that ACNA 
is part of global Anglicanism. And we want to identify with it and it to identify with global yeah. Anglicanism. That doesn't rely on an institutional connection to the Anglican communion which may still exist and have a role and a part to play. But global Anglicanism can be recognized as something so much bigger if it's united in the gospel, theology, the truth of God's word. There's a a place for a 16th century historical LARPing society, you know, sort of a live action. (laughs) And so that's that's fine. That's insofar as it exists. But, you know, Lee, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned about the the coalition that that, co- that has coalesced, um, you know, it very much is, it resembles a lot of what we have here in the ACNA, which, you know, you, you were talking about the varieties of of sort of concerned evangelicals and Anglo-Catholics, um, you know, who sort of have uh, found themselves uh, with a common um, cause. And I think, you know, it was hard, not hard, but it just you were describing the the sort of sense of of excitement and um, and uh, conviction that that I think really is is a marker of of a part of how the ACNA even came together, you know, some, some unlikely bedfellows, nevertheless, um, you know, have, have agreed to put down some of their historic uh, disagreements uh, in service of what they would see as a more fundamental um, commitment to the gospel, you know, despite some of the differences in churchmanship or, or ordination or what what's you have you. And so I, how's, I was, how's that working out, JD? <laughs> well, ask Matt. He, uh, he, uh... <laughs> Perfect. Well, no I mean, it's tenuous. No it's tenuous, and we talk about it all the time. It is not working. It is working out about as good as you could expect. Which is that in any compromised position, there are people who feel they have been, they have given more than the other side. Um, and so I think that's where you have. Um, we pray for grace, favor, and um, and patience. You know, I mean, that's all you can hope for because. Uh, this is a, a compromise position is a difficult one to hold, particularly over over time. You know, I mean, it's it, and so this again, we'll we'll have to revisit this. Uh, you know, we we'll, we keep revisiting this um, in our own conversations here. But but it did it did strike me that 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 was the coalition that, that came together here. Um, and it's not surprising exactly. You know, it even sort of represents um, I'm always reminded of the CEEC. And listener, if you haven't read the St. Andrew's Day statement, you know, yes. from 1995, it still has yet to be better, to my opinion. It is concise. It is, it is, um, you know, wonderfully it's intellectual, but it's accessible. And you know, big name people, Oliver Donovan and Michael Banner and various people signed it and wrote it. But it remains um, this amazing statement on the pastoral heart behind the rejection of blessing of same-sex unions, civil ser- uh, marriages, whatever you want to call it. And um, I'm I'm grateful that that persistent witness has been so consistent over these decades. You know, that's what that's what um, I think is is encouraging to me uh, as I look forward. And so I, I guess my question, in light of all of that, is what do you see? I know you don't have a you know we don't know the future, but what what is the next I don't know five ten years look like for <clears throat> evangelicals in the Church of England in light of this this change? Well, my prayer is that God will grant us a great deal of revival and restoration and renewal and that the Church of England will be reformed in accordance with God's word and all this nonsense will stop. Um, Liberals will leave in a mass exodus and form their own church. Perhaps they'll merge with the Methodists. There aren't many of those left. They believe in the same liberal things. So in with the Druids, you could just go all the way back, you know. Reopen Stonehenge. That's right. So we yeah. can go back to Stonehenge. Yeah. And, uh... Uh, so that, that's what I would hope for and, and long for and pray for. Um more realistically, I mean I'm not a prophet 
or the son of a prophet. I just work for a non-profit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so I, I can't see the future, but there are various things that look more likely. So some people would like us to form a third province. So the Church of England is two provinces, Canterbury and York each with their own archbishop, each with their own convocations and and, uh, and so on, and legal existences, mm. really. They work together a lot, but they are legally separate. So perhaps we could form a third province. We did once, back in the ninth century, you may remember, uh, we did have another archbishopric, briefly. Uh, King Offa set up the archbishopric of Litchfield. Um, <laughs> are so Canterbury and York geographically overlapping? No. Okay. No, they're territorially defined. So England is, it's not split in half. Canterbury is bigger, but York is generally the north and Canterbury the south and Midlands. Um, but we did we did once have a third province for a while. Maybe we could set up a third province and either kick out all the liberals into there. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we think of some better language to use to describe that. Um, <laughs> but I'm speaking to Americans, so I'm just trying to dumb it down, you know? Um, or, can, you, or... can you do the rest of the interview in your best American accent? <laughs> <laughs> I'll try that later. Um or we, or we make it so that the third province is the one that's orthodox. Um, and so we we have canons in the orthodox province of Mercia that is um, that are tightly defined by Lambeth 1998's Resolution 110 or something. Mm. Is that because you know, something that the institution, that the, you think the, the institutional powers that be would let happen? No. No, they certainly won't let it happen. It would have to be fought for if it was going to happen. A third province was a suggestion when we had the debate over women bishops. Some thought that the only solution to that would be to have a third province without women bishops. For those of us who, for theological reasons and in good conscience, can't uh, accept the oversight of women bishops. It, it didn't go down well <laughs> as an idea. There's a bit more appetite for it this time around with this current issue but i still think it's highly unlikely and it's still problematic because we'd still be one church in three provinces and we would have to make some sort of declaration that as part of this one church we recognize the other two provinces as part of the one holy catholic and apostolic yeah. church well i don't want to say that about a province which has <laughs> denied the faith and is leading people to hell by the things that it says and it's you know it's pastorally unkind to be in a province where the official line is that you can ignore god's warnings of the wrath to come and when he says if you live this way you will not inherit the kingdom of god and we say but that's not quite true you'll be all right really. <laughs> that's right that's pastorally no unkind knowledge, and right? theologically that's, wrong that's so we would have to acknowledge that somehow we would be out of communion if it was, you know, properly said, we'd be out of communion with the other two provinces for that reason. And I, no one's got the appetite to set up a third thing which will immediately declare that it's independent and out of communion. The best thing we can do is to try to reform and renew what we've got and try harder because we're not trying hard enough yet, maybe. Um, we haven't fully put our shoulders to the wheel on that. There's more we could do. I don't know whether that's going to happen. I don't think it's inevitable that the Liberals will win. They would like us to think that because that works for their narrative, doesn't it? That's We're right. on the wrong side of history right. because they are inevitably going to win. Well, I don't buy that. I don't buy their own argument. I think it's neither inevitable or imminent that they will win. 
on this long pride march through the institutions, uh, as Gramsci might call it. But, you yeah. know, a lot is still to play for. And it's encouraging to see, um, you know, the evangelical presence and the lively churches, particularly around the universities. I mean, that's that's, um, yeah. you know, that's that's an encouraging aspect of the Church of England that I've seen personally, but also know just by friends and, and other colleagues in and around the areas, um, you know, some of the downtown London churches, some of the Oxford and Cambridge, you know, Durham, uh, these places that that are um, producing and training and equipping uh, next generation um, evangelicals who are going to stay and they're essentially they will they will stand firm in the midst of this um, as you said the march the pride march through the institutions, <laughs> yes. uh, which is encouraging. I mean that's what I you know uh, that's what I tell people here um, is that the inevitability of this victory is far from <laughs> from um, secure, uh, particularly from a Christian biblical standpoint. I mean that that God is removing His hand from these apostate churches and allowing them to uh you know be be uh, sink into the ground is fine you know and, and that's certainly we've seen that before you know we've seen him um allow the world to be his judge with respect to his faithless ministers and yet at the same time we see revival um all throughout the old new and and throughout the christian history wherein the law uh, by the power of the holy spirit was brought back to convict and cut people's hearts um and that's what we we pray for in all of this, you know, and there's nothing that there's nothing that um, turns people's hearts more readily than than increasing nihilism and despair, you know, and that's what mm -hmm. that's what we're seeing all around us. Um, and this yeah. sort of um, frantic grasping for meaning in a, in a seemingly otherwise meaningless world, you know, we have this incredible opportunity right in front of us. And so I'm I'm really conversely encouraged by the response, uh, despite the bishops, which is disappointing. I think that uh, we can speak personally that sometimes it takes these final decisive statements of apostasy to actually rouse and motivate the, you know, what do we pray like rouse the the careless, you know, and and um and strengthen the 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 feeble, you know. This is what this is what I hope we will continue to watch. And of course, you have been on the forefront of that for decades, and so you know you could. Um, hopefully simply welcome more co-laborers who maybe 10 years ago were looking for an easy living um, and now find themselves uh, through conviction and, and uh, conversion in a place where they um, are having to put down that easy life and pick up the the difficult um, you know work of of defending the faith in a hostile environment but I'm grateful for you and the um, and the the work that you're doing and uh, we'll continue to be praying for for y'all um, in the midst of this, these, these trying times. Well, there's such a lack of hope and a lack of purpose and a, a lack of forgiveness in British yes. society right now. We don't know those things because the, you know, the, the woke agenda as it were um, that I've heard you guys speak about has taken over and that, that leads to no, no forgiveness, no right. coming back from when you're canceled. There, there's no real purpose to life at the moment for many there's despair um we have strikes going on all over the country things are falling apart britain is broken on a number of levels and a lack of hope we don't know what the way out of that is right. our politics is a mess and it's it's rubbish um and it's not helping and the church is divided like this now you don't have to have a degree to be an evangelical you don't have to have a degree to be an orthodox christian so there are lots of lots of evangelicals outside of those places oxford cambridge london wherever you mentioned in many towns and cities and villages you will find people who believe in god's word and want to see that 
um, proclaimed throughout the country. One of the hardest ministries we're involved in is supporting and trying to um, promote and encourage at the moment is in places that are not evangelical, places that are not that. They're sort of middle of the road Anglican or they're recovering from liberalism that's just devastated their churches. And they've somehow managed to get an evangelical as their minister probably because a good patron put one in that's right. or they accidentally appointed one just because he was a nice guy and had a family and they wanted <laughs> that's to right. go to Sunday school. That's right. You know, as happened in some places, I know a place where that happened, two Anglo-Catholics or liberals went up for it and they didn't get it, even though they would have been closer to where the church was at that time. They gave it to the evangelical because he had a family. He had four daughters. <laughs> that's right. And now that church is evangelical because over 10, 15 years, Amen. they hear the word, and they change. So we're, we're setting up a, a network of revitalization ministries. Norm, we call it norm, because it's going into normal places. Um, normal places, not the big sparkly, right. um, you know, urban and suburban flagships. We're going into the ordinary parishes and trying one parish at a time to bring restoration, reform and renewal to, to those places with God's word. So that, that I think might be the hope for the church of England, just doing it one at a time, not just in the flagships or the big places, but everywhere. So pray for us. That's what we need. We need God to be at work. Amen. Amen. You pray for us too. All right. <laughs> I do. What should I pray for you? <laughs> Much the same. Our culture is at odds with the word of God, and we we three, our friends, our churches are are trying tooth and nail to proclaim the truth, share hope, and praise Jesus's name in it. Amen. Well, thank you uh, so much, Lee. Thank you to our listener for listening to Stand Firm this week. Uh, <laughs> if you'd like to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch. Hope you'll rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy, and a special thank you again to Dr. Lee Gatiss. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Thank you.